two and three. And I'll, for the record, I'm just had my 80th birthday. Congratulations and happy birthday. Yes. And uh, I've been going through clearing off uh, shelves and things so that my executors have to decide what to throw away. Yeah. And I came upon, upon a, uh, <laughs> uh, of all things, a packet my mother had saved that had a bunch of high school pass around photog photographs, and on the back of which your peers in the class wrote little messages. And uh, the bunch of them had all the things one might wish to see about leadership and this, that, and the other thing, you know. But the, my favorite one, the only guy I wanted to see at the only reunion I ever went to at 25 years was a guy who wrote to me, to an oddball who <laughs> it was my pleasure to know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he was the only one who saw through to the real me. All those other people saw the, you may find quite genial, caring, concerned, interested, organizing type that I'd already become as uh, people, I was president of all kinds of things. I never cared about running for anything. I just did things. So that's why I'm here. I, uh, in spite of what everything else might transpire you hear about, uh, I did get through to people and uh, uh, fairly well for 17 years that first organization last till a couple of nasty ladies took charge. And um, but, uh, one of my favorite expeditions with the Hikers Council we were um, uh, working on a repair on the Knobstone Trail. And I just happened to look around that day, and these, we had really, really skilled people working. And one thing, I'll, three or four things I want to make clear of this, and then I'll stop. And later I looked it up. Yes, these people, some of whom would come up to me to have me check their work. I got so I wasn't building much, I was working with people. Out of 12, we had seven engineers. And wow. they would come to me for uh, questions because they knew. I guess I had a, I had an engineers or architects. I okay. could see things, you know. Forget intelligence. Something. It's. I think it's one of those innate things. We all have some of it because they wouldn't have been able to get back to the cave after killing the mastodon unless they <laughs> somebody had that eye for things and whatever. Right. So uh, twelve of those guys. They were regulars. So I can get along with some people real well. Uh, yeah, okay. Two things, uh, why I'm here, you know, all that. Um, but uh, one of the main things, I, I will answer in detail, but uh, that uh, I'm not sure the present board has all that much respect for me. I think of them as good old boys. I'm pleased to be here. Somebody has, has uh, got their eyes open, but because I'm not too long for this world, but. Um, uh, the most important thing is, I don't sure those people really understand, is that uh, about trail design. And uh, a lot of people can see what it should be, and they understand about making a flat surface, because a car doesn't go up a hill like that, you know, you flatten it out. People have to walk that way. But the thing I've been trying to teach, and, and you can't seem to, people can't seem to care enough about, is getting the water off. Sustainable design, their techniques, reverse grade as an element to interrupt the flow. Oh, and prevent erosion. To prevent erosion. Sustainability. That's <coughs> two items. One, if, if you don't have something flat and 
that people can't stand on. The water has to shed. I used to give, uh, carry, I always carried a level in my pack, and I was given one, one of the first times by Jim Allen, property manager at uh, Yellowwood for all those years, for the first times I ever built a set of uh, stairs, and they weren't level. And he said, I've, he gave me my first level. And I never built, I've got this maxim, stairs must be level inside or out. You don't drain with the stair stuff. Right. <laughs> you put drains in between them, but you don't. So anyway. How did you find working with Jim Allen? Fine. Good. After I would lay something out, he'd come and say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I went, well, we can get into it. If you ask questions, I have a detailed, short, concise, because I understand this can't go on forever. So, but, so all so. I was doing was just trying to give Dave some background. Well, and, and all I know is what I have read and then in my interactions with you, and I thought, I'll try to come up with some questions, but I only could come up with a few because I well, know I think, a lot about what your background well, was. Well, <laughs> look, look at that. I mean, that's a lot of questions. But if we can be quick about things then, I, I did, and you've got this uh, brief history of the Knobstone Trail. I had just a couple emendations to that, which you might put in your notes, um, okay. because a couple of them are important with respect to Jerry uh, Padgett. You're going to interview him, or you have? Oh. He may not. I haven't asked him. I wanted. Okay. Well, I want uh, two things here. Uh, what he did, there's a, uh, this uh, history here is, is exact up to the point of after 1977 because Jerry, I got Jerry and Tom, uh, Joe Payne on the board of the KHTA because I knew that Jerry had been the one, who I interviewed him, had been the one who uh, got the idea and did the first acquisition of property to make the Knobstone possible. There's a nice story in this book that uh, Strange, what's his name, Strange yeah, wrote, about how a piece of property came into their possession which connected up two big important blocks that were in possession in 19... Uh, 79, which would make a trail possible if you could get a property to connect them. There's a nice story there. I won't tell it, but it's there in the book. So Joe, Jerry did that. He got the property, but then he got kicked upstairs and they hired uh, Joe Payne to build the trail. And he's a great guy. He's done a lot of marvelous work. He knows a lot, understands trail design now, but he sure as hell didn't then. <laughs> Because he put that in with a bunch of volunteers and let Boy Scouts design trails and things like that in a couple of years, the first major part. And what I did in the Hikers Council, one of the earliest things I did was do an assay of what was wrong with the knobstone. And I, got a, I did a condition evaluation in 2000, the year. We spent the next 10 years taking ditches off the trail and putting in that's it. Every time you go down that thing, you go this way instead of this way. You can see the old road, the old route there, because I just spent the next 10 years with the Hikers Council replacing those things that nobody understood at that time. 
he was just ignorant. He was smart but ignorant and in a hurry and got all these volunteers and he just went out and whoop, 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 connected things up and that was it. But boy, by the time my group came along, uh, it was, well, I, what we did was work for 10 years on the place that had a scale one to four. And all we did was eliminate the, the destroyed ones. That was four. Three was dangerous, four was destroyed. Mm. All we did was spend sometimes uh, a couple weekends in the spring and a couple weekends in the fall just doing that. We'd stay overnight. It was tough work and long sections, big bad. I mean, bad. And now there's, never mind. Okay, the other part that needs amending is, uh, uh, yeah, well, the condition survey. So that's a little more background on their key, absolutely saying it was important what Joe did. You know, it was necessary, and it was every, what everybody knew, and it got the thing there. For years it was okay, but over time, uh, that stuff won't work, and nobody knew any better then. That's what I did at Morgan Monroe. How many years later? Replaced the same things. What did I do years later at Brown County State Park? Same thing. All they did was replace the straight-down ditches everywhere, because that's how they did it in those days. So, but that's... So, just put in that uh, he was the first person who enabled people to walk on the Knobstone Trail. Joe did. And Jerry got that important, the idea, and then the important major behind-the-scenes nice little manipulative action that got the state to buy the property in between them. Yeah. And then later on in 96, when they tried to, uh, the DNR tried to buy land, or they got this idea to expand the trail. Would they listen to somebody like me? You gotta be kidding. You'll read in here that they uh, tried to buy it. They got money, they put money in the budget. You don't go in and buy land from those people. But I could have told them that. But no, you nobody's ever done it that way. You get easements. And wait for properties to come on available. That's what you do. But would they listen to somebody like me? Exactly. DNR, if I hate anybody in the world, I'll go to my dead, the crematorium, screaming about the DNR. Well, you actually worked for them, though. Oh, I did. Now, I, I would say, I could think I could say I was a friend of Jim Allen. Okay. Doug Baird, at, uh, on the ground, people with their feet on the ground. What did you think of Bernie Fisher? I, he approved uh, a couple things I asked him for information about, and he didn't know him well at all. Okay. But I, I went in there, I was trying to figure, find a route for the Tecumseh. And there was some question about going up on the, the ridge above Bean Blossom where there was an old um, informal trail, but I couldn't get permissions and things. I was talking to him about that there when I ended up putting it over where I did to take it off uh, above Bear Lake and take it across the road there, across Carmel Ridge Road. That was absolutely essential. That's a death trap, that road. The highest accident rates in the county or the state. Yeah. Very dangerous road, yeah. I really got a couple absolutely essential easements there. It almost took me to court. I was in, I have stories. There's something here about, uh, how do you go, number eight, yeah, that's the only one I don't have any notes for in your questions. How did you go about obtaining easements for the trails? All I wrote here was, uh, you want a book? I'm, I'm writing one, actually. But no, easements, that's something else. So anyway, those are my comments on the history here. I think it's excellent. You could use it. I, I give my approval. He did an excellent job of, of filling in all the steps along the way here. But now for these things. All right, but I've promised to 
Well, never mind, I promise. Here's something else I've had on my wall for ages, which, interview thoughts. I've been able to follow Emerson's advice. What did he say? This is from the phone book. Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. I guess if anything could be said about me, I've followed Emerson's advice. Yeah, that sounds perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I followed animals' paths when I was a little kid. There's some woods behind my house. So that's and where my it all dad started. Would, my dad would take us out. He, he called it looking for pawpaws in the fall. We'd just roam all over the place. And sometimes he'd leave us somewhere and we'd get ourselves back. Because we knew the way, sort of. Just go uphill to the road. If you miss the campground, you'll find it. So I got independent real quick in my family, too. <laughs> that's the whole story. But so I've. Yeah, we could start on these. Okay, so you have you have questions before, but I would could suggest that I have thoughts that would keep me concise and to the point and cover just about everything as we followed uh, Charles's excellent. Works list. for me. Okay, but maybe you had a question or two first. Well, uh, it seems obvious that uh, your interest in nature and hiking began. In as a tiny so, child. That's right. Yeah, we moved to that house with the woods behind it at, when I was uh, six. Was, it, was this in left. Indiana? Oh no, far away from here, let me tell you. Uh, if I'd been in, born, born in Indiana, oh. I wouldn't be in this room today. No. I think no. you would have moved on, huh? I, I don't know. Uh, no. <laughs> I wouldn't have moved anywhere, and therefore I wouldn't be in this room. Okay. No, I came from far away. I mean, at 16, I took myself to Europe for a month. I wanted to get away okay. and do explore the world. I grew up with, mother was raised on a farm and got the idea there was a big horizon out there, and I caught that from both of them. So, you know, I went to college as far away from Ohio as I could get, <laughs> West Coast. Nice. Somebody gave me a list of good places to apply. I had no idea I could get in, but I said, okay, I got into it. Pretty tough school, actually. I didn't know what working was. I almost I had a hard time with it. I'd never had to work in school before. And I learned about that kind of stuff then. But I, I, could, do, I could do it. Didn't know how, but I could. I had a lot of learning. <laughs> but it was good to get away, and I never went home. So, yeah. Well, uh, I think that was an excellent suggestion to start off at least with uh, Charles's questions. So, how did you originally get started with trails in let this me, area of Indiana? Let me uh, get my notes so that I don't ramble on. Um, I moved to, uh, my husband got a job uh, teaching doctors of all the frustrating things at Purdue and in 1972. And so I got to hiking and found a, a started a Sierra Club chapter up there. and. Uh, uh, got to hiking with people from the Sierra Club and uh, went, uh, got to familiar with trails in southern Indiana then. I was already, well, I brought these things just to show you what I did in my spare time in graduate school. I helped start the Sierra Club chapter for Maryland. This is so long ago. And I was sitting around the library one night thinking they needed some money. And I thought, well, you know, people write trail guides. Problem is, there weren't any trails, so I had to go out and find them. But, then I did write and produce and publish and leave the money for this book with my Sierra Club. So trails and me go back 
the actual building and designing and writing, doing things with trails goes back quite a ways. Uh, and that was just something I could do, kept me busy on weekends and uh, uh, was, I met all kinds of people because I had all kinds of help and regular hikers and all those things, you know, that uh, helped <coughs> me put this thing together. I mean, one of the people got a MacArthur grant later, the guy who did the maps, and there's a guy who was, uh, no, yeah, two, two of those actually, two people. So it was a pretty good group I had, but all kinds of people from all over the city came to hike. I would put together hikes and lead them around and say, oh, this was a good trail to ride it up. <laughs> Find things, talk people into things, you know. It's, only, it's the only state city water supply of any size in the country that allows people to walk on it. I had a little conversation with the manager who was about to retire. It was the 60s, environmental 60s, right? Me sitting there on his desk, and you can do that in Baltimore. You can't in Boston or San Francisco, but you can do that. And it's fantastic terrain. It's fantastic. But this is why. <laughs> moment, the right person, the right moment, the right guy. He's the nicest guy. He even gave us things to put, tags to put on trees and things. But I promised him people would pick up trash, and they did. So I treated it right, you know. But anyway, I've been doing this for a long time. So, okay, here, what happened was, uh, I got involved, I noticed, started watching trails, was involved in environmental groups, and um, started, the trails started falling apart in front of my eyes there, the Hoosier National Forest. And I realized that actually was on, I was on some kind of citizen's commission by that time. And um, I, uh, uh, there was a problem, horses were everywhere and they constrained, they made a decision in that forest plan that year to constrain horses to numbered trails, a select discrete few, which overnight destroyed them. And I noticed that and I found myself hanging back and trying to fix things. It was just my nature. And I knew well the trays, and so I'd get in late to the campground, and everybody else would go ahead, and I'd be looking around for logs to stick in them to stop the erosion, these trenches, you know. And I just got to doing that, and meanwhile, I was putting in complaints, and you had to write up documentation to try to get them to fix something, you know, up to yin-yang. And one day I was sitting in the office there, the assistant superintendent, I, I, I was a real, I can be friendly. And I was talking to Bruce Solver. He's retired, but he's still alive. Met him in Florida recently. Um, and I said to him, I always remember sending, I said, why do I bother turning these things in? I was just in his office, you know. And I, I went and threw it in the wastebasket. And he said, well, Suzanne, you know, the horseback riders are organized. Guess you guys are just going to have to get organized. So I went home and did it. I called uh, all my sent out a notice to the 80 Hoosier backpackers in the old Sierra Club hiking group. 25 people showed up at the home of the man's name on the second question, Standing Hall. So I went from knowing the trails, seeing the decision that had been made and complaining to, and, and being sensitive to the destruction. I mean, you couldn't walk on those damn things, you know. Uh, you know, the ditchy kind of things, and yeah. you know, they've got ditch, I took a picture once of a place, 
uh, on uh, the uh, peninsula, Frank Rugg Ridge, that peninsula goes out to a point there. Uh, there are something like four places where they dumped gravel because the main trail was still left going straight up a small rise. Four gravel-filled ditches and the fifth one being uh, initiated over on the side because if you do a little digging, you find out that down in that area, people didn't like taking their horses on gravel because they were too cheap to shoe their horses. So they're all running around without horseshoes on and that made it prickly to walk on gravel. This is what I was told. So that's why they wouldn't work on, walk on, take them on the fixed trails. They would build a new one if they put down gravel to fix, quote unquote, fix a horse trail. That's what, because I could talk, I talked to horseback riders too. And they t told me, Suzanne, you know, you can't win this one. So uh, anyway, uh, and that's where Stan Newhall came in. And the 25 was whittled down to about eight or 10, sat around for uh, a couple of weekends, quite a few hours, many, many hours, and came up with a bunch of bylaws and created the Hoosier Hikers Council. And it would be the Hoosier Trails Council all these years, except that the Boy Scouts regional <laughs> chapter was called the Hoosier Trails Council. So it was Hoosier Hikers Council. And uh, I, in the first days, realized I designed the thing and put in an executive director at that time. Uh, because I knew you had to have somebody in charge, otherwise it, you know. And uh, so I started working for a dollar a month or something. <laughs> as, and I was teaching sociology. I'm a, well, why Baltimore, I was, I got a PhD in sociology from Johns Hopkins. You know, all of a sudden everybody knows where I went to, to school. <laughs> right. For all these years, nobody ever heard of it. Now it's, uh, well, once in a while I must say I do mention, oh yeah, I, uh, I know that place. Right. <laughs> Well, we used to walk through there to medical school on the way to the swimming pool. That's a story, but anyway. Okay, so, uh, and you just heard number three. Let me check my notes and get to something. How I started it. Uh, yeah. And something about Stan. I just got a memorial to him and put, helped put together. Uh, oh, I put him on a bench, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a cute one. Uh, as he got older, everybody in the Sierra Club in Indianapolis, where the hiking group started, started retiring or moving away. So he was the only one left, and he became the, the real leader of the place. And I, I was putting up a monument bench for Jim Allen a few years ago above Yellowwood Lake at High King. I've been on that bench. You see. Okay. I thought somebody ought to recognize him, because the DNR never did make anything whatsoever of his work and building the Tecumseh Trail. Never acknowledged him, to my knowledge, one tiny bit. So I thought he ought to have a bench. So I applied for a grant to fund it, because those things cost four or five hundred bucks. That age, unbreakable, aging, ageless uh, material it's made out of. Well, I must say this is, um, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a very modest person, never mind, <laughs> in case you haven't noticed. Uh, I applied for money for the, from the Brown County Community Foundation for money to, to put up a bench for him, his work in helping establish Tecumseh. And they refused me unless I would also accept another 500 bucks to put one up with my name on it. 
So that's, but Stan Newhall's out there on my bench at the end of the Tecumseh Trail because he's why I was there. He was my mentor and at the end there, I think I was known for him as the crazy lady with the maps right. because there came a time where I really did uh, know a fair bit about what was out there. I was writing, I had trails column. I didn't bother bringing my stack of old trail articles in the, from Indy Star in Bloomington, but I did for a couple of years there until they went to bike trails, but anyway. So uh, that was it. Uh, and uh, he made a very important contribution, uh, deserves to be remembered. So he's got his own little uh, mention out there. My name's on some easement stones here and there too, but anyway. Uh, but I just found myself staying behind and fixing things. Oh, in fact, oh, but the Hikers Council and its role as a trail fixing group. I've been, I took a year off from being in Indiana and Illinois where I was all those years. Uh, my husband got a terminal appointment at uh, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. And I moved there after a while, but uh, uh, I've been in the East for just one year helping my sister open a bookstore. and. I noticed people out there were running around and paying money to run races on public hiking trails. And I thought that was absurd. But when I got back and got the Hikers Council going, I realized, well, hey, maybe we could do that too. And I swear, as far as I can remember, the reason why we really other got to fixing trails, other than when I first got hired there, I can tell you about that quickly. Uh, uh, I remember saying out loud to somebody, my God, we're going to have a race on this. We'll kill people. And we had about two months before the first race to get rid of one of those steep things. And I remember, oh, we were so proud. We came back the next week. We'd made a trail about this wide. You know? <laughs> but I had figured out right away how to get things out of those ditches. I mean, obvious. It was so much. It was just so obvious. How did I learn? Well, I got a brain and I use it out there. And I understand. But uh, so the, I think one of the major things we did to get into fixing trails, not just designing but fixing old ones, was because of putting on races. And, I, and uh, I realized, I really, really meant that, that you can't run on these things. In fact, I remember putting uh, one of them, I think it was the, uh, the, you know, the low gap, the Nardstone thing, I would only put it the way it goes, the direction it goes, counterclockwise, because for years there was that horrible place which became the rock shelter overhang. That was one of the toughest things I ever designed. I don't know how many days I was out there trying. I know that I could, I could feel it in my dreams still, all the places around that exit out of that very interesting, important place to look at till I found a place and it was we went straight up a rock face, and there was no real trail there. And in fact, it was a nature preserve. The, what's his name was glad when I got it off that thing, because it was destroying a beautiful rock, barren sort of almost tiny microenvironment. You know, but we put the so first place back in there behind the rock shelter where we put a trail in on a face, which had no shoulder to put a trail on, and we built up the soil there. The first time I ever put a one of the zigzags there. There wasn't any trail there. First time, I never forget it because we realized we were up so far, but there was no place to go, 
and we were here, obviously we had to go there, so we anchored a couple big logs and filled with clay soil and such. You, I've done that many places, you can't tell. I've, I can remember. But you didn't like logs. Well, that was to fill in, that was to hold. That makes a natural retaining wall if you've got clay. I mean, I've built, we built sections at uh, 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 Brookville. There's a one place, with three years we worked, four years we worked on trails there. The fourth year we did the impossible places. And one of those, we laid rocks. In fact, there's a place on the Tecumseh going down. In fact, my son did this. Going down the first thing, part of that trail down from the first takeoff on the Rock Shelter Trail. My son put rocks in there. And we, we put in one of the, a big slab of, of a ramp with rock base at Brookville. Yeah, I'll tell you about this one. When, I, when I'm out there, I really know something. And it's so basic, I'll never forget that place we, that rocks were placed along the trail because they were placed there by my marvelous son, Robin. And I had to tell him when I went to check this work that it wasn't right. I'll always remember, because he didn't have them level. Uh -huh. And I had to tell him, here's this, he's unfortunately passed away, but he's, uh, here's this giant of a guy, strong and smart and everything. And I had to tell this beautiful man that it wasn't good enough, basically. And he cheerfully went on and hauled up a bunch more of these things, you know, slabs, nice slabs that you find in the streams, you know, to, and to, to make it level enough. You can have some going downhill stuff, but you, like you could step in here and get an anchor at a heel or something, but it, it was tilting out and you can't, I know you've got to have a couple of degrees, but there's, well, you know, there's, it's, there's a lot of judgment to it. There's enough and not enough. And it was clearly not adequate. And he just just needed some, a bit of uh, attention and a little more experience and so on. Oh, it's not the kind of guy to object. You know, like these guys would come and say, well, you need some more, that's all I'd say. And they'd go right back and, you know, uh, do some more, you know. So uh, anyway, so there you have it. How did I get into it? It seemed, I just had this interest in, I think you could summarize it for some reason. It's unanswerable or in, uh, because it seemed to have been an interest in, it combined a lot of my natural tendencies. I was alert to destruction and the experience of being there. I mean, at uh, Brown County, it was, that place was so degraded. It was just terrible. We're oh, talking about the God. state park. The state park, okay. yeah. When we went in there, I, inst I made it took a month to look at the problems. I mean, there, it was, it was just dangerous. I mean, I, my, one of my favorite comments was someone. We were in a totally degraded place, and uh, too. One lady said, "I remember this place is where I broke my leg ten years ago." And another man, we were th replacing this giant ditch of eroded, gushy clay, and I. <laughs> And I stood there fixing. He said, what are you doing? I said, oh, we're this, you know, fixing, replacing this degree. He said, oh, it must have rained a lot last year. <laughs> this erosion had been going on 50 years. I found out who really laid out those trails because I made a comment about such a thing and the guy was still there on the staff at Brown County State Park. 
Oh boy, I still remember that one, yeah. But I mean, when I put in trails there, miles and miles of fixes, and I'll never forget the last one, the toughest one I did, Doug Baird was walking back with me, and he ran a few words, and uh, he said, well, it's pretty nice. That was probably the only praise I ever got from him. Uh, but he said, but I did think they might be a bit wider. I'd always tell people, father and son or whatever. And he said, but I guess since they're safer, they won't have to be wide enough for the stretcher bearers. <laughs> that had been his quality control all those years. <laughs> I've never, for some reason, I've never forgot that quote either. I don't have all that many in my brain, but they're doozies. How about that? There you go. Oh, I met somebody up in uh, <coughs> uh, doing talking trails up with someone at uh, uh, the Lakeshore Park up in the state, the federal one, I think, in uh, northern Indiana once. And this lady said, she, I think she was on the staff, she said, I won't go to Brown County State Park, it's too dangerous. Those trails are too dangerous. Wow. i never forget that either. I didn't say much, but I, I so did find that very interesting. Can you imagine there was that much institutional knowledge and nothing was... Trails out there, they're still dangerous. They're stupid. They're horrible. Nobody knows. I've given workshops, but now i got a kinds of physical things and then the COVID and the basic principle of drainage design. You don't... Most people don't have the uh, interest or the interest to follow up about whether or not you can stop that from happening. So people just go out there and put a trail in a nice place and don't think about it. They might make it look nice, but it won't last. And they can't, they don't understand how to fix things. You can fix lots of things by inserting little dips, grade tilts and things, techniques. So. So, uh, just out of curiosity, do you know if the original trails in the Brown County State Park were laid out by the CCC? Um, <laughs> some of them, because I fixed one of those once. There was a lodge from some of them, some of the oldest ones, like the number two, I know for sure, because it had a lot of stone slabs and things, decoration and whatever, steps were made out of it. And why I know about that one is one of the first ones they ever fixed. There was this trail, I thought it was so steep, right from the lodge. First you go down the hill and you go down this steep place. And I thought, what's, how can I, what am I gonna do for that? So I was back and forth about what to do about it. And all of a sudden, uh, two things that were really cute. I was standing at the bottom where you went straight up and I noticed that one, there were stone steps here and then a footbridge, okay. And then there was a stone that went off like that to the side. It was angled away from where the trail was, straight up and down the, the face there. And for some reason, I forget if I did it or I asked somebody on a at a team there, go take a rebar out there. Well, long story short, there had been a beautiful, properly terraced, surrounding, contour-hugging stair-step trail there and following this stone oriented away from the ditch was another one and another one and all we did was take the dirt off the damn things. I mean some of the original steps were tilted forward. Right. We've reset those. I mean the erosion had been so enormous down that hillside 
And uh, actually, if you saw a picture of the original state of that park, when you they started building those things, that whole place where the lodge is was a field of gr a yellow clay. There wasn't a thing growing there. And I thought twice and three and four times again about that when I did another project there. The, I had been asked by Doug to get some of the dust off the footbridge there, okay? There's this arching thing and then this footbridge with stone things, you know, along the side. So I had somebody dig away at the dirt there and dig and dig and dig. Dirt, step, step. That bridge had gone down like this to meet the arch from below and had been filled in at some point with dirt that had filled in the entire gully ages ago and finally cleared it out enough that water went through there. And we removed all of that and just disclosed the dirt. We also winched up all kinds of stairs and this and that pieces of slabs, you know, those big mm -hmm. limestone slabs, how many feet across? And I had a winch out there and we had a team, we'd all get on the thing and haul, I don't know how many of those we hauled up out to replace missing steps here and there. And then I had people go in, I had a crew for one summer of five people, I think, and um, I put in on the upper reaches of that gully above the uh, bridge, I had it lined with the saplings. All these trees were falling down into that thing, and I just, and it was unsightly, all this second, third grade growth stuff, you know, was dying. I had them peg those in, and then if I didn't like somebody, there was one guy who was the laziest man I'd ever known, I'd make them go dig up ferns places and sort of and put them in you know, a little soil, and I renaturalized re the slope there with these saplings, I was having them cut out of the the, uh, the ditch down there, the little creek, you know. And so that's now, you can't tell any of that. It just naturalized that the place at the rock shelter, those big logs where we put some carried clay and filled them in, they're just, it looks like, you know, they naturalized in the place, settled in, it's just, just a path, you know, up that slope, but it wasn't there. And if you have a big enough log and put enough clay, didn't take long, I mean, we just forgot about it. It, was, it just worked from day one, you know. But that was, that part, that trail was, um, uh, we did a number of interesting other things just like that all the way through that one. But it had been laid out, but there's no such, well, the erosion was so total there. If I ever get what I'm working on, my project finished and published, I got some to die for pictures of Morgan Monroe State Forest with no trees in it. Mm -hmm. My favorite is one I got from the DNR archives that has, it's labeled uh, Forest Road, 1930, Morgan Monroe State Forest. There's even a 1925 something like grown-up Model T in the distant background, so you know that tells you age of the photo. There's a snag here, and a field, and a snag over here, you know. Yeah. It's terrific. If I ever get to publish thing, it's going to be on the cover. Because <laughs> it just, of course, the whole thing is a plea for protecting what we've got. Here, here. There's going to be a section on the the stellar founders of all these groups from the 70s and 91, the 90s. So, because that history, should, people should know what they owe. 
who they owe things to and uh, to support the continuation of efforts such as the IFA. I mean, people don't even know that O'Bannon had created a special category for preserving old growth in his administration, yes. but, but he didn't, unfortunately, create it legislatively, so it died with him. But almost nobody knows about that. Well, overruled by current administration, yes. Well, current administration, never mind. Don't get me on that one. <laughs> Going, I mean, that's, you know, I don't know if I'm fueled by... No, I think all of them, as a kid, as a kid I was, I was justice, and I was going to write a dissertation, another dissertation at uh, IU, U of I, I guess, on on the failure of mandates uh, to, to be enacted, you know, uh, because that's, yeah, we've got, they've got a mandate, the state forests have a mandate to honor recreational needs, you know, yeah. but following through on it, forget it, you know. I'll never forget hearing Seifert laugh when... Uh, we, we had a meeting once to try to deflect something, and I'll never forget his words. Uh, wilderness? Oh, that was just a fad of the 70s. <laughs> yes. He told that to me. Did he? Yes, he did. When, what year was that? 15. Oh, that, he still is talking that way, because that, yeah. well, that meeting I had, there was, was going to be some kind of demonstration down in Bloomington, and I actually called a meeting with Seifert to show him how we weren't connected with that because I knew he'd blame us for it, the Hikers Council. Mm -hmm. So I had a meeting a few days ahead of time to express our willingness and eagerness to work with him. One of these things I did, trying to keep uh, our, the noses out of the, you know what. Uh, and it was at that meeting, I had people there crying, one older couple, the guy actually cried when he asked for him to protect something or other because he cared so much about it. One of the board members of people, I think he was a board member, a common, a frequent uh, trail worker, trail, uh, always remember that. And Seifert was, the, he did giggle a little nervously when he said that, I always remember that too, but it was, you know, said it with a, what they call a nervous laugh, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> That's the only grace you can grant him. And uh, it's not worth a thing. So, yes. where were we? So, when did you start working with the DNR? Did what you... was your involvement? Okay, I was being your professional executive director, and after a year doing things at uh, the at Morgan Road State Forest, we put on our first race working with the old guy who was the reason the dam had failed. Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, sure, you do anything you want. We put on a race and started. So I turned in a report to the new property manager about what we were doing there, just to introduce myself. Just this is what we've been doing. And uh, I mean, it said in the book I never read about being executive director. You have to turn in reports, you know. So I thought I'd mention. And of course, it was smart, but I didn't do it because I thought it was smart. I just thought, oh, this is what you do. I didn't realize what it might lead to. Or if, but anyway, I walked out of there with a job. Uh, he, we got to talking, and it turns out, though, one of the reasons is he'd only been there a little while, and a bunch of bigwigs from the DNR and Indy had come down, and he took them out to show them his new property, and they got lost because the trails petered out. You couldn't get around, uh, what's his name, Bryant Creek Lake. The trails just petered out on steep slopes. And he literally got lost, and he wanted me to fix the map. But what I really had to do was fix the trails. I went out to fix the map, and I found three different trails, each one of 
petered out around Bryan Creek Lake. And I found traces when I got in there finally where they'd been trimming back the vegetation for years and then stopped at some point so you couldn't get through. But once I did start cutting, I could see old evidence, you know. Right. So um, he, he hired me, he said, with some gravel money. I always remember, he said, well, you know, I got some gravel money and you could maybe, you could work or you'd be interested. Or I was teaching, I fairly recently relocated to Indiana for whatever, for various reasons. And um, so I was just interested in what was going on there. And uh, he happened to, uh, because I was there and obviously knew something about what was going out there. And uh, so then he just kept me on because he, uh, as soon as I started doing what needed doing, uh, he got, he understood, he was a smart guy. And he really did care about trails, you know. And, uh, and who was this? Jim Allen. Oh, Jim, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, this guy, Mike Martin from Indy, DNR, had to come down at first. He was Streams and Trails, outdoor DOR, you know, division. He came down at first to approve my trail reroutes. Because, I mean, the first projects was that thing, that ditch at uh, Rock Shelter, which you and I had to get rid of that. And, uh, but after the second time down, he said, you don't need me anymore. So I didn't have to prove it. But Jim would always come out once I marked something and he'd walk it and uh, I don't think he ever changed anything. Neither did Doug Baird, but we continued that. Uh, I, remember, I remember that first reroute because there was an old, very pronounced old straight up and down ditch. You can still see it. And people were so set on doing that, they actually a couple times tried to block my new trail route and redirect people. They did that once at Brown County too in the Ogle Hollow thing. Tried to redirect people back onto the old ditch. And I had to come out and remove there. Because, I mean, I added a quarter mile to that trail because putting it where it had to be for drainage purposes, you know. So you went from a straight up and down to a switchback. Well, there all I did was take it out around the side of, and angle it down, slowly down, to meet the creek and then back around the creek. Okay. okay. I forget what you did in the old one to get across the creek. I think you walked through the water or something. But anyway, uh, it was a great, in East Creek, there was great blue clay in there. I had kids play in it sometimes. Um, but, uh, so that's, it was because of Jim's uh, interest in improving his property. This was before anything about the Tecumseh or anything. He just had that experience. He knew something had to change, something had to be fixed out there. You couldn't have people getting lost on the trails because the map, you know? Right. So there I was giving this report and clearly was doing something with trails and he just happened to offer me, ask if I'd be interested. And I was teaching sociology, but not at a proper level and not enough hours to really survive on. So this was very useful. And then, of course, at that time, I was starting to spend a horrible amount of time on hikers council things. And so what this did was allow me to start fixing things. So I, during the week, I would design things and I'd get my uh, hikers council volunteers out to help me build things. But all the time I could have to figure out where to put things and what to do. So that's when I, I got this 1958 uh, National Forest Manual, Field Manual. It's still in print, still selling. 
uh, uh, trail design and uh, got the very basic principle of this uh, these ways to direct water off. They had names, different names for them, but I got that real fast from that and uh, and used it then from then on. Uh, more and more elaborate applications I figured out that weren't in the original, but the basic principle of taking, all it is, it says take part of the trail and reverse the grade, put it down a bit, put a dip in, a drainage dip, because if you can do that as you go down, it's really neat to say it, I've taught this to people in two minutes, you're going down the slope, all you do is you go down a bit, a little, little more than you have to, and then back up again, create these dips around a tree or in front of a tree, you know, like this, go down, tilt the water off, and you've interrupted the flow because water can't go back uphill. And that's all the principle involves. I mean, I've said those words with a group, I remember big wigs once. They said, just this simple thing, think about it, guys. You're going downhill, just divert it a little bit, and that's all you need to do in various elaborate ways. Do you think some of the resistance that you met with in the beginning was is because you were a female? Well, I see that on the board, the present board. They kicked me off a while ago. I think pirates are just a bunch of good old boys that uh, uh, I don't sense a lot of respect from. I don't think they really actually understand what I've done and uh, and what I know. But that's beside the point. Uh, I sure I've, I've thought of been thinking about this since he sent around that nice. Uh, Somebody there and help me. I didn't have to organize my thoughts. You did it for me. It's a natural explanation of what I've been up to. But um, I did have uh, a lot of people never had a problem retaining volunteers, although I had standards because I think people saw that I was fair and uh, could see the. I was. I must say I really worked at being careful around a lot of guys when I was pointing out some changes, let's say, not even call them improvements, that might be made to make sure the water gets off, you know? I devised techniques, but, oh, this was one guy, Patrick, you know Patrick, I'll never forget one time. God, it was hard to talk to, talk to him. At, uh, he was intimidating. He was, well, I, not to me, but he tried to be, but I mean, his manner, yeah. And talk about defensive, if I tried to correct him, he was doing something, uh, how to stop to slow the flow of a little bit something across the trail. And it was really cute because I worked so hard to try to get him to accept my suggestion to fix something he'd done. And it was not terribly happy outcome. I didn't feel that he'd been, he was really aggravated by my comments. But it was really cute because later in the day, there was another place we were working in the bottomland somewhere. And I heard that guy repeating my explanation to some other volunteer that he'd noticed making the same mistake right. that I'd caught earlier in the day. I never said a word, but I'll never forget it because he was at least listening and he did fix it. I wouldn't let up. I mean, I, I never went back. I don't go. I didn't go, have to go back ever. But I just said, you know, it really this. If you do this, it slows the water. Some places you can't direct it. Well, I've done many things. You slow the water and do these things on the bottom line, the toughest place, you know. But I always remember Patrick later in the day then. It was, that was pretty nice, I mean. Yeah. And he's not no dummy. I mean, he understood, he just didn't enjoy being told, you asked, yeah. as a female. Right. I don't know if a guy, I bet he wouldn't have been quite as defensive around a, 
a guy. So uh, that was, uh, uh, yeah. Well, obviously, I, I really don't think I felt much, and I've worked with some of these guys on the board, and I, I do believe they're really fair and decent people. And a couple of them I've worked and really understand trail design and everything. Bob Curran, I remember in particular, I wanted to get him to do a lot more work than I could get out of him. What? What would you say? Well, I, I was just going to say it's obvious that you didn't let this influence <laughs> how you got things done. Yeah, but I certainly, I'm sure the DNR, a good half of my bad or the treatment I've got from them is because I'm a woman. Would you say? Don't you? Do you feel that? Do you, do you sense that? Or Cipher is just a you know what? Never mind. Yeah. Well, he's way to everybody. He's, he yeah, doesn't discriminate. I, yeah, I think it was an equal no, opportunity yeah. to discriminate. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, I like that equal opportunity to discriminate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I, you know, I don't think he picks sides. I'm the sociologist. I looked him up once because uh, I actually had a part-time something that uh, did one of the scorp analysis when, at Purdue. I had a friend there in the forestry department. He was on the adjunct faculty there. Do you know what his background is as a forester? He's a silviculturalist. What? Silviculturalist. As I understand it, his degrees were in uh, uh, wood production industry yeah. and, and promotion, yeah. having basically nothing to do with ecology or forest management. Well, he seemed totally ignorant of those subjects. Oh, he's, he's kind of the fox who's looking at him. He was chosen for that reason. Well, by people who have similar yes, yes. tendencies, right? Right. There are those who look at the forest as a commodity. Right. That's right. It's just a tree farm, right? Right. Right. So, yes. So, so right. um, Jim Allen was in charge of Morgan Monroe and all the time. Yes, right. So you worked there, and he I worked basically fixing everything. And long mid midway there, all those four years, we were building. 96 to 2001, the four years uh, we're building the trails around uh, Brookfield Reservoir. After a year or two on the work, the uh, manager at Brookfield Reservoir called me up. There was an article, somebody did an article about our trail work at Morgan Monroe and invited me to come over and build a trail there. And, uh, and it turns out, he told me later, uh, the horseback riders there for, were in to him to try to get him to build a trail in this absolutely vertical slope on the far side of the reservoir. And he knew he couldn't do that, but to do something to develop it, he decided maybe he could put in a hiking trail. And that is one of the toughest things. Talk about impossible places. Uh, uh, I'd said the fourth year we built the impossible places there. Three years. We spent all the same years I was working on the Tecumseh. We'd go out every, I had projects uh, sometimes two weekends a month those times all you know many days a month and uh, so uh, so these those were but, but yes but Jim Allen uh, was there and interested and I don't recall I once asked him well whose idea was it to build the Tecumseh and I think we agreed that he had that idea when he went to those meetings but what that's another question down here, I guess, later. Um, I went to those meetings that f where the, uh, the uh, study to complete, extend the knobstone that published a report in 1996 uh, were done. And I, what I did was I had just started the Hikers Council, 
and I had just done a hike on the knobstone. I remember getting to the top end, mm -hmm. looking at my map, and saying to myself, why does it stop here? Right. So then I called up the DNR, sent them a letter, and I got told of these meetings. I'm not sure I was invited, but I was told of them. I swear, I'm not really sure that it really said, please come, Suzanne, but right. I was informed, and so I went there. And actually, I'm the one who got the present route determined, because I looked at their map and I said, you've got to be kidding. Mm -hmm. They had the thing going up to take advantage of those state lands at Star Hollow and Delaney Park, and then, and then I don't know what they did to connect it over to the other county, because you're in the middle of bottomlands there, and you'd have to build a bridge across the what? On top of it. And I looked at it, and they said, look, here's where the ridge is above Muscantic River. And I always remember that day, because at the end of it, they were summarizing things, and some young guy got up and stood up and said, he made a motion, you had to make a motion to do something. So I, I moved that, we followed the plan by, by that, um, lady over there, I was the only woman in the room, <laughs> to officially change the route to Wheeler Hollow above in Muscatatuck, and that was it. I just looked at the map and said, that was done, so. Are you responsible for the name of the trail? Did you which name one? it? Which one? I sort of had, I had a contest, nobody entered, so I chose that because I wanted a name on the map, an Indian name on the map. There's yeah. so little official recognition in the state of any forebears. Yeah. So I picked, and I checked it out. They didn't really live down there, but it was in their major hunting area, so it was mm -hmm. legit. Well, that's why I put Adina on the uh, trail at uh, Brookville, because that's, there are actually Mount Builders uh, sites there, and that was the focus, original focus of the major, major archeological discoveries of that area and over into Ohio where they, that complex years ago was more developed, but it started there. So Adina was a reasonable choice to commemorate and uh, I was shown places and it goes real near an old mound that had been desecrated or something, but I kept away from it when I put the trail there. But it's definitely a fair name that reflects the the uh, old inhabitants, yeah. Well, if I ever get my re, uh, <laughs> this last panel for the info sign down at Sparksville Park, which I really did sort of complete last night, because I went to Brookville. I did check out Bunny Booker, who no longer owns those place. But anyway, I've got the sign down there that acknowledges all the previous original Indian inhabitants, and there's even evidence of uh, habitation there up on that ridge above Sparksville. And I noticed that I call, I've, I've got a whole panel on the uh, original immigrants to this area. Big focus on immigrants. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I just added a new Are we one. talking about Europeans at this point? Oh, uh, no we're not. I trace these people. These people, of course, were original immigrants to Indiana, came from China. That's in my, my history of the area for, for the Sparksville Park. Okay. I'm having lots of fun with it, but just last night I, I was listening to a song on a recording I have from recent about how um, if you really, really look to the DNA, you'll see that uh, we're, our passports really ought to be from Kenya. Yes. 50,000 years ago. So I just, I, I just added one last line to my history there last night for this sign down there. It's something about, because this song has something about, we're just 
drifters from the great rift in Africa. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> We're George. all just uh, drifters from the great rift in, uh, in Africa. So 50,000, only 50,000 years. And what's 50,000 years? That's nothing. You know, when you think, I mean, it's just crazy to think just that long ago and, and there, there are hardly any people anywhere except, uh, and now they're, you know, they're all mixed up. We see still evidence from all kinds of, not just Neanderthals, but other blends of people that the latest discoveries, uh, different strains of humanity that were walking the earth at the time, the Cro-Magnons that we all think we're descendants of, were on the earth. There's elements in our DNA still, what, two or three percent DNA? Neanderthal. Anyway, so there we have Jim Allen, and but he had he had the notion of that's Mittenthal. He had the notion of well, that's what's carried me here, uh, of doing something there. And what I credit him was the important thing. See, he did took away from that uh, meeting and the plan. He wasn't his responsibility to do anything about connecting the old original knobstone, but he could do the work on his property. That's what I'm, I am I think of his work. I, I've never told him this, but I see that what, what he took from that, it gave him the idea maybe to think about that for something that he might do on his property. See, nobody from the DNR ever told him to do that, you know. Uh, you, you do this work and then we'll worry about the rest. Yeah, I think property managers had way more free hand in those days. And they, they, they did. Oh, I could do anything that was needed and, and obviously reasonable. And these guys, you know, I've, I had, I think, a very good relationship. Oh, when I got recommendations for a job, I almost got instead of, uh, I'm sure they thought I was too old. Uh, or I could have done some work in Ohio instead of this stuff. Anyway, um, they gave me nice reviews. Yeah, they, they, I think, are my friends. Uh, because we were just equally interested in doing the right thing by what those properties uh, needed. That's Jim all. Jim Illinois gave you great compliments. He said, you are the reason why there's the country trail. Is that right? Jim said that. He really did. Oh, I never heard that. He never told me. <laughs> yeah, he said, it would not have been done without you. Well, I've often wondered because I don't, for, the, for what it's worth, I seem to have had a, a, an affinity for, I mean, a good eye. I think people would tell me I, was a, I could have been an engineer, but for seeing things, you know, I mean, it's, I think mm -hmm. with a sculpture, I see the slopes. But I tell you, I used a level because I knew, learned early. I could not trust my eye, all the countervailing slope things you're going on a trail. So I used, I was putting steps in there at Opal Hollow Nature Trail. I remember one time, 15 times, I put the level back on the step. Because you, if you think, in fact, there's this principle, excuse me, I'm full of them, in spite of being an atheist. Uh, the, no, because I'm an atheist, that's why. If you think it's level in a place like that, you're wrong. That's what I figured out. Because each time I put the level back on, I thought I was right. I'd leveled the step enough. But no, it was still tilting because the slope was going such crazy different ways, my eye couldn't see what level was. And I had guys who were working on that one summer there with me and I made them, I had a big wooden one, I made them work with it because they couldn't be there all the time. Uh, because they, you know, it wasn't a criticism, it was necessary. 
Yeah. You know, so I figured those things out, and I've never encountered too many people like me that interested in doing, figuring out what was needed, actually, all these years. And it's been not very easy to teach this stuff. People are glad to follow markings, but people don't, it doesn't focus. I don't think it's, 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 uh, it's something like, uh, you know, ideas you get, you know, good quote, no, it just knows what's right, you know, it says, understands things you can hardly put in words. So, you know, but, uh, yeah, uh, but learn about it from, from learning a few basic principles and just applying them. You can learn this from books if you do the work and really think about what you're doing. You can, and I have taught a few people, but most people don't accept the necessaries as essential. They just don't. So you have to supervise it. Then there is the next one, how do you go about obtaining easements for the trails? Uh, it's just as difficult as you might imagine. <laughs> Here, give me something for nothing. Yeah, right. Right across your private property. And it doesn't always work. Yes. So you, you meet, find you meet with the property wealth. owner, you, you explain the, the project that you're working on, and you try to persuade them to do it. That's right. And they, I could, it, uh, the first principle is you find commonalities, or the only way it works, you find common interests. Often people will have some kind of public spirit or interest or something. Some people are really glad to share. I always remember somebody. Uh, one person like that, he'd walked all the trails in this area when he was a kid, and usually they finished saying that, and I want my children. And he said, I'd be happy for others. Knock me over with a feather. Yeah. Be happy for others to have that opportunity. So, but usually they still say no, and I got this park donated by a farmer down in southern uh, Jackson County for the extension of the knobstone uh, called the pioneer section i <laughs> greg mcpike yes i always remember talking to him for perhaps a half an hour or something then i had to finally ask him and he said no my best new best friend who's had a house house key to her house for in sparksville by this time i just went to see her now yesterday in bedford because she's house been ridden right now She'd already talked to his wife and his mother, who both, both approved of the trail. And he was supposed to say yes. Well, you asked me, how do you do it? Well, I don't know. I kept talking for half an hour. And I got a picture of us walking with the surveyor, talking the next day or that later that day about the park. So the answer really is, I don't know. That also happened with an easement from another guy, uh, Zolman, a big Zolman easement. And he was a guy who'd been putting me off for years uh, in the same Sparksville area. But I had this good friend, uh, Edith, and uh, she'd tell me, well, he'd ask, how's that trail city? What's she doing? You'd meet her in the, <laughs> she'd meet him in the supermarket. And she was, he kept, he was watching things. So long story short, there came a time when I was in his house with a friend of his, and it was also 86, as was he, sitting there talking about the trail and these, uh, uh, his days there, the, his parents, 
took buckets to feed poor kids in the Depression to local Priest Creek School nearby. And this neat lady, marvelous woman that I had gotten to know, was a friend of aunt of my good friend Edith in Sparksville that I got to know who helped me set the trail up. And uh, I'm sitting there with this marvelous woman and this guy, and we're talking about all this. And I finally had to ask the question, and he said no. An hour later, we were driving across the frozen ground, this area where we were going to get an easement, and he was taking us to this old cemetery that was on his property, right in the middle of a cornfield, showing me how when we put the trail in, we had to put this spur up to this old cemetery, and then he showed me where different people were buried, and all those guys, it was an influenza epidemic in 18, and as I say, how do you do it? I don't know what I said after he said no. My brain froze, but the mouth didn't, I guess. Well, it sounds like you didn't take no for an answer. Well, that's true. But what I said, cooling. most people, when they, <laughs> there doesn't, hasn't always worked. There's one notable exception that's still haunting me. But anyway, and there's a surveyor in Brownstown. You don't know how often I'm in touch with his secretary. Anyway, um, <clears throat> not to speak of the other people. But uh, anyway, People who sell things, it turns out, have techniques and so on, but I'm not experienced enough after 35 or 40 easements all these years to know exactly what to do, but a couple of times I've something in me has managed. How about the pie? Oh yeah, I was known as the pie lady for a while there. Because <laughs> I would show up when I'd meet people to talk about easements with pies. and. Did you bake these pies? Oh yeah, I'm, I was a uh, fair. So, so you were bribing them with food. Oh yeah, and uh, before or after, I forget which, but I really did have a reputation, I learned. One guy <coughs> I really got to know and would drop in. Some of these people I drop in. I still drop in and see people for easements for years, with kids and things. But I'll always remember this one. Uh, I didn't just bring a pie, I brought a notary with me. Some guy had been putting me off, and I found out when he came home from work. And I showed up with, uh, oh, what's her name, Skip and Marsha Hubs. I had the easement to sign and a pie in hand and the notary with me. <laughs> and I knocked on the door. He hadn't agreed to have me come and sign the easement, but we'd been talking and he's, I think he'd sort of agreed but on the phone and we, I hadn't been finding him home or he wasn't answering my phone calls. So... I did what I just described, and it worked. Yeah. I always remember sitting there and talking. He invited us in, and we sat on the sofa. We were just talking, passing the time of day. And it must have been half an hour. And I always remember him getting, there was a black guy of all things, that bought a fishing property. <clears throat> I always remember he got up and he said something on there. Well, I guess maybe we ought to do something about signing this. <laughs> he was so nice. But I mean, really... Uh, I did things it's, um, you, you don't hire just anybody to do. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's, you are. You're born Irish. I always do, I learned to say there's no such thing as a, a little Irish. But I sat at the feet of an Irish grandmother and listened to her stories when I was a kid. There you go. Uh, when I was in Ireland, I really felt at home. They, people invited me into their homes, really. I've done that. I've been in homes in Turkey, in Argentina. People do that.
in Estonia, all over the place. I've been, I had an exchange project. As a, couldn't do anything else, Cold War thing, years ago. Still go there. So, so the one failure we currently have, not truly a failure, but we have not been able to get the Cooley property. Yes. Right. Now, that's a string of properties on a hilltop that we have to have. We've got, what, five already? There's a missing, five, and there's a missing link in the middle. In the but, middle. But I'll tell you, uh, I stopped while I was at it, just, just stop in and say I want to get a photo at uh, Frederick's. And you guys have to go ahead and put in that trail we walked in February last year, the last time, and you guys went up the hill, and I sat down like a log. I didn't go up with you because my back was starting to fail me. You need to put that in because when Huddleston, who owns the properties next door, when she passes on or sells it, because that's when somebody has to go to the next owner and say, we've got all these people here. Because I, I don't know if, uh, well, the other thing is watch for obituaries and see if Cooley passes on before his wife does because she's in favor. And I talked to their son about it. And well, I talked to Mr. Cooley about it. And he said, well, this is a Christian family and she obeys me. But there's a good Ouch. chance Fredrickson's for years, the husband was a drunk, said no. But the minute he died, uh, I go there and visit. Uh, and I'm advising their one son on the growing of hemp because I've got a nephew who's a pro. So I've given him all kinds of info when we talk about that. Okay, but when he died, I went, I found out about it and I stopped in. And she said, of course. I asked about possibly. And I'll tell you this, when I went to see who I should commemorate, mention something, I always remember what she said, something about well, I should put her husband in something or on something. She said something about, oh, I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> right. Oh, that's but, good. But back with Cooley, didn't you do a few things already to try to talk to him? I mean, well, taking him place. I've done. He and... took me up on his property. Then he backed out at the last minute. His wife, years ago, we were. I was meeting him at uh, Oktoberfest in, uh, what is it, Seymour, and uh, walked up to the table, and she said, "Oh, are you about to? Are you going to sign the easement?" And he put her off. He said. I'm not sure today. That's where it stood. We were so close, so close. Now I'm talking to the son, but now he did not answer my last phone call. In fact, I think he sent it back or something, but he's got my info and he's a public person, you know, so you just have to leave it at that. But I talked about him, you know, I would never disclose this or anything about your father, but as a public spirit, I wrote to the son. I heard, because the, Cooley, this stick in the mud, uh, told me where his son worked, banker. So I contacted him at the office, and I didn't want to do it at home or anything. And I sent him material about it, but I think he's decided that he doesn't want to be a part of it. It's certainly not now, but there is that chance. But it would work perfectly well to go on the trail that we discovered that day. On the th uh, and what that does, you'd put it in. See, that would be does powerful. Does that to anything? Oh, excuse me, this is a different principle to operate on because here's, here's, here's a way to look at it. It would connect up to Huddleston's and you'd have it, and that's the power of it, see. If Huddleston sells, then you can approach the new owner saying, we've got the trail, 
legal approved desired by your old neighbor here on the old school property and over here by all these marvelous people who did this for posterity and you'd have it and uh, that's it yeah. and that's only that, that way you're counting on the 50-50 chance of getting a, a new owner against the not nice numbers of getting uh, Cooley Jr. Because that's going to stay well, in the family. Yeah, it's, it's in my list. So. Well, but I mean, so really all you have, in fact, the point of it is all you have to do is go out there and GPS it. Because it doesn't have to be in. But I would like you to do that sooner rather than later before something happens well, to my connection with the hemp grower. Okay? Yeah, isn't that going to happen this month? Or isn't that going to happen next month? But it might happen in March. Well, I mean, even uh, Scott could go out there and someday and do it. Because yeah. you know where we've put it. Yeah. It's, I think he's probably got a GPS of the way down, although I would accept... He's got his own agenda, though. I, don't know. I know that. But we're talking again, <laughs> copiously, so I, I understand. Well, that was my one and only principle I learned the thing all those years of having uh, groups, like my exchange project, which is how I did my uh, Cold War thing. I set up exchanges, and I have reaped benefits I never imagined from that. But I had a big committee and all those things. You find out what people will do, not what they won't do, and you make use of it. And he's got so many talents and so much to give. So we should quickly go down the rest of these here. Tell us about Sparkling Park. You heard about it. The structures, I got grants and local people. One time I had an auction. People showed up and just gave us money. Everybody local. We got a couple thousand dollars from that auction. They sold old washing machines. They emptied out everything. One gay guy, I'll remember one guy came up and he just put $300 down on the table and he said, I don't want anything, but I got six grandchildren. Here's 50 bucks a piece for the park. Because we had to just, I got goosebumps thinking, how nice. I mean, we sold old washing machines that people that's sitting, you know, they'd have one that needed just a repair and they'd put it out and get something fancy. They would work if you put a little something into them. Everything went. It was, uh, yeah. And, uh, but the field you got donated. Oh, well, I mean, how did we get a... <laughs> oh, yeah, we got the playground equipment de de donated. We got all the foundation work donated by a lady in town who'd been a professional groundskeeper for the airport in Houston or something, Nancy Martinez. I still visit her. And did all the masterful... Uh, dozer work on the first one, which we got a cut rate price on. And uh, the potty, uh, the work I did to get that, I got the works donated, but this local guy, Nancy's husband, helped pour the concrete base and then did the work to build around the innards of the potty that I got donated from waste management. I got the, I basically got about everything there donated. But it, I don't build that. You don't know how much, how many hours and days and weeks I spent on the phone trying to get that potty donated. I mean, that that's... And it's yes. used. Oh, it's, you know, sociologists like numbers. And here's one of my favorite ones. Uh, is the park used? Okay. Um, I was there in May or something once and I saw that late April, it was almost full. And I called up the company and said, or the city or the town or something, I said, 
gee, it would be nice if we got somebody out here to empty this this year or something. They said, well, it's already been emptied. Yeah. So you count use in that thing by how many times the right. scale is composed of how many times you have to dump the potty. Right, prove forget, positive. Forget that the pavilion or the, tra the trash is another good one. Often. But people have never put graffiti on it all these years. There's another measure of value. Yeah. They don't, we'll and they've never destroyed. They've <laughs> never destroyed the picnic tables, and there's usually nothing left in the potty. Sometimes some underpants or something, but uh, it's spacious. Uh, ventilation and everything is work of art, cedar. Uh, but uh, the trails, we've got grants for, we've got local grants. If you have money, all you want to, from the local foundation there. It's, uh, it's money, it's blood money for Mumpke, the waste fill up on the top of the hill there, but uh, they contribute to the local foundation. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. Grants and local nice people, still people taking care of things a bit. So why, number 10, why did you start the Knox and Hiking Trail Association? Because I had to. The Hikers Council kicked me out, and I'd already got... Uh, but you were starting that. Two ladies had just decided, one was actually the girlfriend of a guy I introduced her to. Uh, oh. My old f best friend. Cruella? Yes, Cruella, right. My old best friend, anyway. Long story short, she hurt her back and she needed something to do, so she decided to take over the Hikers Council. But the work on the, I'd started focusing. We'd done everything we had on that list in that meeting room at Standing Walls umpteen years earlier. We'd done it. We were doing it. And I thought the last one was complete to Knoxtone. So I actually had got a group of people, almost a substitute board of advisors, various people, knew something about that trail together. Didn't call the board, though. They were just advisors or something. So they kicked me out, and I don't know how many days or months later, I called up all those people that agreed to be advisors and asked if they would be on the board of a new group. Everyone said sure. So in just a couple months later, I had a board and a group, and a local big leader of the major Boy Scouts Association, all kinds of people that, you know, knew how to do things. And so just, uh, as someone said, you know, close one door, one friend said, close one door, open another. It needed its own group. That's why I'm working now with these guys to try to get them to get an executive director because that was important. Then those guys, that group is losing it because all those selfish people who took over, they can't look beyond their own nose to replenish and invite and welcome new people. They don't. It's just not their natures. That's one of the things you do as a now you're talking about the, the hikers council. Yeah, right. I'm afraid it's going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. I've, well, I thought that's one that group, whatever. Yeah. yeah, because they don't have that in their natures. You know, that's one of the things a board a director helps with. You know, because not everybody goes out glad hands people to invite them in. They've got to, you know, you meet people and you work them in and. It's, uh, it's that extra step when you see somebody to, well, look, I recruited you guys, or you got, uh, got attracted, and I didn't strong arm you or anything. It's just like, like easements, you find people with shared interests, mm. and you give them a role, or they find a role, you know, and you provide an opportunity to do something, I think. That's sort of what I've done all my life. You just, 
Somebody needs to kick, get the ball rolling. That's all. That's all we've done. So anyway, I, I had hiked the uh, Knobstone Trail the year it opened. So I had. Uh, you were a sucker. Yeah, 1982. You were a sucker, just uh, waiting to be. And 83. And I used to look at maps and try to figure out how I would run it, and I couldn't figure it out. But you guys figured it out. What? Extension. I, used to I think see. About how I would extend oh, it. well, that took me a little while. I would look up. To the Tecumseh took me a little while. <laughs> and I determined you just had to get some easements, too, because it was unsafe. I think we went into that earlier. So it, I spent a lot of uh, concentrated time, probably more than you did. I got oh. in my car and I searched oh. the topo maps and things. So if you had spent that extra time, you probably could have figured it out. Really? I want to go through Starve Hollow like everybody else did. But I you, couldn't figure out how to get from Starve Hollow. Well, for a very good reason, because you couldn't. You had to cross all that bottomland, yes. flooded bottomland. Yes. <laughs> that took me two seconds to figure out when I saw that damn map. I didn't even go there. I just said, you can't get anywhere from there. And I said, forget it. That's yeah. all. You're Starve standing Hollow. here and you look up and there's the ridge. Starve Hollow is a beautiful place. Of course it is. But it's a dead end. <laughs> That's right. And they just couldn't get away. The bureaucrats couldn't get away. Sounds like it's properly named. Oh, yeah. yeah. They couldn't get away from using that available land, you know. They, that was a, does things to you, you know. Yeah. It just, it, it becomes a, a blindfold. Yeah. And I was new, and I just used a hiker's, explorer's eye on it, and it was very obvious what to do. No question. So I was almost surprised when I found that there. And of knowing me, I had no hesitation in speaking up to ask them why. I was very polite. I suggested that a, a more a, a feasible route be because it was bottomland and no way to cross the river. Dead end. I didn't use that term, but I suggested, and it, it was so obvious once it was suggested, that it was, they just said, of course, that was it. Same day, started up, they approved it. But they were going to go ahead and go on the escarpment. If they had take, taken your way, they were going to go a little more up across, uh, as I understood, looking at the map and talking to you, the, the committee wanted to go across the Sparksville but try to take the escarpment on up. Well, go where? From up to Brown County State Park and around. Well, didn't they want to go a little more east than what you wanted to go? I don't think so. Who? Which committee? This at the, the 1996. Oh, program. I don't recall ever having that part discussed at all. The only recommendation I made was to take it uh, from Delaney, from Spurgeon Hollow, straight up to uh, the somehow. I didn't know how at that point. I got easements and things to go there and worked on the other side of the road where there's trees on the other side of 135. But I had nothing to do, I just basically suggested, just looking at the map, you don't go up here and have to cross the white on no bridge. Down here there's this, there's, there was that state property over there off uh, Goat Hollow Road. There was property on the other side of 135 from from Spurgeon Hollow up the road and just a bit, you see, up the road. So they had that to focus on. And nobody ever questioned it. They just basic that day, simply crossed off Starf Hollow and took it up the road towards the, uh, the, the parcel there along Goat Hollow Road, above Wheeler Hollow. They just did that that day. 
it was so obvious. Get it away from the property owners to trail users and planners. Yeah. And I mean, I had no uh, grudge or what's the word, axe to grind or anything. I was, uh, you know, I was a disinterested person, so I wasn't there advocating or didn't have any, you know, I was a, they could see the, perhaps it might have been a part of it that I was just, I was out there explaining things. I didn't have, I wasn't there as an advocate. I just looking at it, and I didn't. I wasn't trying to persuade anybody. I just said that this looked. It had this, these problems, and it seemed like, you know. So I, I didn't have an axe to grind or anything, and they, that might have been, made it real easy to just look at it, you know. I had never looked at that. I'd never seen it before in my life. I just happened to look at it and say, oh, this seems, not use, smart, not, not uh, feasible. I mean, I'd already, at that, by that time, already been dealing with bottomless. I knew that land would be flooded, see. I somehow knew that. I remember that was in my brain. And I, so I knew that some of the times of the year, you couldn't walk there. I mean, I was just out there yesterday, coming back from Bedford, where I stayed overnight with Edith to talk to her. Uh, there are cranes out there now. In fact, I was thinking of you because there's zillions of cranes there mm. along the road between uh, Brownstown and uh, Bedford. Not and 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 I saw some the other day when I went. No, wait, did I see anyone? I'm not sure I saw them when I went from Medora the previous day from Sparksville, but I saw tons of them on the road uh, along the road those flooded fields along where the 50 crosses the white. Yeah, yeah. There were zillions, and I was standing there yeah. talking to somebody, and they were flying overhead. It was really, uh -huh. they're thick, and they're still going. Are they coming or going? That's, I looked it up on the web last night. They are still actually going south because of, it's been moderate except for a few bad spells. Yeah, I saw them about I a month ago going. I I They've been going late. for ages, and they were already late then, and they're still going. Yeah. But I checked, and they are still going, and because they really, I used to go and see them when I was in Lafayette all those years ago, go up to Jasper oh, Pulaski, yeah. and it's not till February and March that, that they, come they get come back. <laughs> and I mean, they're just gonna get down there and turn around. Yeah. I can just see them up there in the air and say, Hilda, which way are we going now? You hear them calling? So, you heard about 10, why'd I start the Knobston Hiking Trail Association? Really, that's probably enough on that. Ten, did I have this? Some extra well, notes? one thing is that Hoosier Hiker Council was not doing anything on the Knobstone. Well, they weren't, and I mean, they we were we had these projects for many years, you know, doing uh, on fixing the Knobstone, and afraid I'm afraid they've really stopped doing all that kind mm -hmm. of thing on. Uh, places that have been built that need maintenance because the state still doesn't do maintenance. You put a trail in, fix a trail, and if you don't go back and maintain it, it's not there. So anyway, ten. Two nasty ladies, it says, two nights on the phone and we had a board. Needed a uh, second organization. Everybody agreed. Seven. How is a widespread... No, that's really, that's... It seemed obvious. Just came out of my head. I was thinking of Bulmer, you know, the state um, surveyor who just died. All right. 104 years old. Is that right? And he, I tried to get him to one of our meetings, but we couldn't have our meetings because right. of COVID. 
Yes. I want him to talk about things that have changed, because he was all the way back from the days when you used to us. Yes. And um, that would have been interesting. Yeah, yeah meets and downs. He would have been amazing yeah. to talk to. He was in the Aleutian Islands in the Army in World War II, oh. and then buried in an avalanche twice. Oh, wow. But anyway, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about with you. Uh, I know I used to do things with the compass quite a bit. But today, with uh, GIS, you can go online anywhere, and you can look to see who owns what property. Yeah, That's that, a difference, isn't it? That's well. It's a matter. That's a matter of time. That's really not. Uh, but you used to go to the courthouses and get the plat maps. Oh, I, I, well, I had. No, I, I still have them. Original. I had plat books. You got. Now you have minor. You have all kinds of comments. There's a book there with all the extra additions and fixes and things. But uh, yes, but that's um, that's the uh, technology. The the real part is the getting the easements. And then figuring out how to put on a trail on what you got to live with. And I mean, Brookville was such a problem because it's a reservoir where they filled in an old valley and you get these feeder streams along the side and the ownership would only go so far up the feeder streams. So if you're putting a trail along the side of a reservoir, you've got to cross all those feeder streams. And maybe they only own up to where the stream is already is too wide, or the land on either side of it is so narrow. So that made some of the narrow but steep-sided places. That's where we had to do these things with the rocks, and other places we had to get imaginative in other ways. That was the the ownership there. It's any kind of state property with water on it. That's your problem in putting a long trail in is getting around those ownership limitations and. I mean, and that was, you know, the things they had to work with at Brown County. I mean, thank God I didn't start out there because I, I already knew a lot. That's my, that's my tango from Argentina. Did I tell you about, I did tell you about taking groups down to Argentina. Yeah. And I'm still, you, you, you never heard about my tango, my tango adventures. Okay, so uh, yeah, technology, new trail building. I might have some help with angles if you got the right kind of software where you wouldn't need the level, maybe. But a water bottle does a work of a level. I think that was my first level. Yeah. If you've got opaque, I mean, the translucent or transparent uh, plastic, not metal. So uh, I don't know that it's really made it, I think the board isn't made it any easier. I'm not sure. In fact, I do remember early days when the coverage, satellite coverage, we were trying to use T GIS, GPS, and we couldn't get coverage. We'd be out somewhere, I'd be out somewhere with a surveyor. I can remember a number of times, and we could, just couldn't get a signal. And now that's, there aren't too many places, but there are still places in Washington County where you can't get a phone to work. And I know all about those places because there was one of them on the route I would take. There was a pullover where everybody would just stop and check their phones and things off 135. Yeah, yeah. And down in Sparksville, you had to be careful down in Sparksville because down near the river. Still, 
Well, I can't even make phone calls. I live in a little valley outside of Martinsville. I can't make phone calls from the house. Sometimes I have to be out on the deck at night, rain, midnight. Get my phone drop to start Verizon. So, technology. Yeah. So, did I mention that I couldn't have done anything without all the volunteers that have helped? I think I tried to, first thing. Because mm -hmm. I realized that. I have done this alone. I've had the, I got that natural by marvelous forebears to just work with, somehow understand that we just need to meet shared interests. And that's what the basis of work was. And uh, then work, find ways to accomplish things with shared interests. And uh, uh, so I've been, all my life I've had very fine people to do my various projects with, which I've been cooking up for <laughs> much of my life. You know, I, I got, yeah. And, oh. Yeah, I, for what it's worth, I see the, you, you ask, what's, do you consider your greatest achievement? Well, I think that, uh, if I want to put that, sounds so grandiose, but I guess that uh, probably I've done the most good by helping connect up the, the Tecumseh and then getting the ball rolling on connecting them all together in the long distance trail. And some of that work, which it takes a character like me to, uh, to uh, pull off some of the easements and things. Because basically, I mean, I really enjoy people. I think of, I read a lot of books, and uh, but I tell a lot of stories and I talk a lot and I think some people have uh, denigrated my worth because of that. But I've met so many interesting people. I mean, you know, invited into homes in Turkey. You know, I mm -hmm. uh, just meet people. I'm interested. I think of meeting people like some people read books, and I get stories from them. I learn. I've learned. I mean, I was, I'll never forget that woman's house in Turkey. And, the school I got invited by the headmaster, and uh, those places in Ireland and uh, Argentina, and a few other places. I've been in many, quite a few different countries over the years with marvelous adventures. Uh, but anyway, the trail, because it's something that people can uh, enjoy, and I guess that was Hiking has clearly been a very important part of my life, and uh, I've just had the fun of figuring out where to put things, because first thing you do when you go out there, you've got an idea, is you find what's interesting. So you go and find everything that's interesting in some way or another, and then you worry about finding a way, if it's possible, to go visit those places uh, with the trail. You know, I've been in places, remember a marvelous thing along the Pioneer Trail that my friend Ed, my long-term companions of 30 plus years, a place we got to on that Dr. Smith easement, we got to this place to die for, except we were edge of a cliff, and the only way we could figure out how to get down there was with a fireman's pole, and we weren't so sure about getting back up. There's this incredible cliff canyon on the part of the Dr. Smith's party, you don't, property you don't go to, yeah. and Ed and I found that. Oh, we were having fun until we got the edge of it, to the edge of it and looked down. And we couldn't figure out a way to get down in and back up. 
in time to get back to where we had to be to continue that trail. So we had to back. It's, what it is is we got into something. There's a kind of a creek, a depression like this. We got out to something like this that overlooks uh, a cliff assembly. But we were going that way, so we couldn't get down on that side of this thing near the, on the going west. So we had to come back around and cut off that whole thing and couldn't take people to the view or anything either because it was so far in. We're halfway across the property. We had to come all the way back and just do this tamer thing that ends up going around his house there and that pond that he put in. I never forget that place, but Fireman's Pole, it was <laughs> it was marvelous. Yeah, was a, not so good going uh, back up. On right, the not so good going on, going north on the thing. Yeah. Yes, could have been okay uh, going south. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about how absolutely tenacious you are, and I'm. <laughs> I've been. I don't actually read Latin, but I've been uh, looking at your shirt. Oh, it's fake Latin. Fake Latin, non-carborundum. I thought of various shirts or things. I thought I could dress up like a hiker or something, and I thought this is just my. So, are I, you saying that you're not abrasive, or are you saying that you are? Oh no, this is a fake Latin for "Don't let the bastards grind you down." <laughs> it sounds. Where's like the bastard when part? You, of it? Illegitimate. That's okay. All right. And known carborundum. Right. Bastards. Yeah. And yeah. known carborundum. You leave out a lot of words in Latin. Well, it sounds. I remember when this came uh, a phrase that was used uh, 20 some years ago, 30, I don't know. I think it was in grad school. And uh, it sounded like one of those old. Uh, Latin aphorisms that are popular and that have been around, you know, for some time. You know, I can't even think of uh, various things people put on flags and state mottos and things, you know, you know, that kind of thing. It sounds like one of those things. But it turns out it only appears in dictionaries out of the blue sometime in the 70s or something. And nobody has ever stepped forth as being the creator of this little fake Latin for don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> Somebody cooked it up who'd had some Latin. They dressed up the f phrase to make it look like it. All of a sudden, people, right. you could get by these on the web, it turns out. I thought I was needing I, all my old race sweatshirts are practically threadbare, and I can't bear to buy anything new in clothing. But I thought, well, if I'm going to get something, I'm. It's, my usual timid little approach to the face I put up in the, for the world, I thought, this is something I could wear. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an excellent motto. Oh, yeah. yeah. I thought so. Uh, yeah, you can I, buy them on the web, yeah, all kinds of things, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, thank you for the translation. I was, yeah, I yeah, was quite sure. You could buy them, yeah. T-shirts and sweatshirts. Down, actually. <laughs> Just look it up, it'd be no problem. Yeah, uh, yeah well, I would, I'm not inclined, but that would make an excellent tattoo. <laughs> well, I'm not inclined to. <laughs> yeah. Not the tattoo type. No. Uh, we are I'm most fortunate in our generations to not be. Yes. Oh, my. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I look at young people today and think when you're my age, you're going to be really regretting some yeah. of those choices you've made. Yeah. Well, I, I swim laps for to get my exercise these days. My heart condition <clears throat> prevents me from hiking much, but so I. But I can I can do the back backstroke until the cows come home, and uh, these guys in the pool, they're all about that age, you know now. And God, the 
tattoos, you know, they have them on there, all the way up their arms and things. Oh, yeah. yeah Ooh, it's arms. a collection. I mean, three quarters of them, it's yeah. weird. When we were hiking the Appalachian Trail, we came across, there was a woman, uh, a very attractive young woman that had a stick figure. Remember that? She had like a stick figure all over her. I remember a stick figure. And I just could not understand this. There, there were several people. All over, her. Down. Just, all over her. All over her. Couldn't make any, I don't know what it was, but it was like somebody had defaced her with a stick figure. And My grandfather was in the Navy in 1900, and he was in the Great White Fleet that got stranded in China while there was a dispute over how to pay for what they were doing. <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt's big stick and all. So the men had nothing to do, so they all got tattooed. <laughs> My grandfather had a, a tattoo of a watch on his wrist. Oh. And he said, well, it's right twice a day. Uh, oh, that's fine. Uh, but my favorite was, you know, you know, he was in his 80s, and there was a blob of ink on his right shoulder, and he said, oh. that's your grandmother. Oh. And I was like, what happened to her? That's funny. Bad. So, yeah, so we're, we're most fortunate. Well, Suzanne, this has been absolutely fascinating, and... Um, do you have like some summarizing thoughts about, because you know, you have made your contribution and what you have brought to the situation is a gift for eternity, as long as people are willing to maintain it and to protect it, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is every generation's responsibility. That's right. Right? John Muir said that. I mean, we're, everyone, every generation has to step up and protect the earth because the forces of greed never sleep. <coughs> So what, do you have any thoughts, do you have anything that you'd like to say to the next generation or maybe the one after that? <laughs> well, you really are obviously a very experienced uh, interviewer and... Um, I think it's the only question I've had space to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got me pegged right. Um, Well, what gave you strength? I mean, you know, the time and you had to keep coming back for these moons and... No, I think of it more as, as a kind of person I am. And uh, if I would do anything, I would suggest anything to anybody, it would be the simple advice of, uh, of, uh, of not, I hope not quite yet long enough life, is that to just, uh, there's one phrase that's have the courage of your convictions or follow your uh, your best your ideas, you know, and just be honest and follow that. So I don't have a particular direction, but because that's all I did, and I came from marvelous people who had a very dysfunctional marriage because they were actually they couldn't argue, they couldn't disagree with anything, so they walked out and never solved any problems. They were so nice, but um, anyway just people who had ideals and acted on them. So, so it's a kind of it's, person. It's, I just hope there are people out there that can do the simple thing that I did, which was just honor my uh, best instincts. I had people that, you can't wish that on anyone, you can just encourage them. Well, do you feel in a way that you were called or drafted? Well, I'll tell you, the first thing I was going to be as a kid was a, 
missionary of all things. And then I became a sociologist. I think I was a born sociologist, and I used to teach about where religion came from. At 14, I think I observed that my pastor was not a Christian. I saw him kick kids out of our little church gym because they he didn't like their looks or something. And I realized, hey, that's something wrong here. But uh, so I took myself out of that confirmation class. But uh, no, I just, I believe I had, it was born to people who did, who followed their interests and uh, convictions in their own ways and work and available opportunities. So I think if anything, I've perhaps got that extra dollop from my Swiss, uh, the, the other strong, many strong people in my family to the, the that there's a lot of complexity in that phrase of courage of your convictions mm. because it takes I wouldn't say I had courage but I had stamina and the forebears to make me the person to do that to follow my convictions so I wouldn't say in a sense that I had a calling except that I'm one giant person of that kind who does those things that's all you can't wish that on people although people discover things and fall into them all the time that are useful but simply it's different than trail building though that 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 requires intent and direction yeah well i I see a problem i very simply among my little things at home around the community you know i pick up trash something that could somebody could slip out i'll pick it up uh, and so I saw this thing with, uh, you know, I was very interested in hiking and I went, work, I'm a sociologist, I got this degree, I should do something with that. But I saw something that was just terribly wrong and it was so ugly and everything. I found it uh, that somebody ought to do something about this, these disgusting, destructive practices on trails. And so that, and then how do you solve a problem like that? Well, you don't do it alone. And so I gathered people, and then again, that's, um, I have two, a brother and a sister each started their own businesses, and they didn't get fancy degrees in anything like business school, no, they just went somewhere and got some experience and became very successful. And a teacher, the one that's like a twin to me, is became a very successful teacher. But he was also the mainstay of the Sierra Club, and early days in Oregon. He's the reason there's a Three Sisters Wilderness. Mm. He and his wife saw it was on the list, but nobody wasn't going to be created. It was roadless. They said, hey, this ought to be a wilderness. They documented it, put it on the list. It just needed to be done. So and they could do it. They were just young students and had some free time on weekends. So uh, my brother, one brother, just followed an interest in cameras, became a successful businessman. So what I chose, it was sort of there. I didn't it sort of chose me if you want to look at it that way. I yeah. didn't set out, you know, although I was doing things. I mean, here, this book, this trail guide, I set up a trail system. There wasn't one. It happened. I was offered a job. that My husband got a, a job in uh, a postdoc in California, so I went there. And when I left there, I was offered position of opening the new office in Los Angeles. But he got a job in Indiana. So I said goodbye to... Mr. McCloskey, the president of the Sierra Club, who offered me the job, and I said, no, but I'm going east. So, bye-bye. I could have done a few other things, too. Oh, I had two other offers. 
start a new series for a publishing company because of my books and things I organized. Could have been an editor, writer, you know, other things. But um, I could have, I started on a PhD program, a second PhD program in Illinois, and then my sister called me away to help with her bookstore. I said, goodbye. So instead of writing a PhD, a second one on the problems of uh, lack of fulfillment of mandates by operating, operating something or other on the local level, I became one of those people who said, damn it, do something about the mandate. And probably contributed a lot more, well, one way to put the cups in a nice perspective, the way I look at it, better that I should build that than go write papers about why people don't do things like that. <laughs> Very good. I love that. <laughs> so that was probably a useful thing that my sister called me. I promised her earlier, years later, you know, you're talking with your sister. Someday, wouldn't it be something to do this? Oh, I'll help you. You just, you know. So there I was. I had first class at I, U of I. I said, okay. Went to help her in Rhode Island, Providence. Very successful thing. But I was never just destined to work for my big sister, it turns uh, out. I can see that. <laughs> well, she didn't respect the things I knew. She was always trying to put, prove that she knew you know, I mean, I had this computer experience. She didn't value computer experience. I had new ideas for decorating and using the basement for this and that and the other thing. And uh, she couldn't see it. But the mayor showed up when I got the place decorated. I always remember just sitting there with his wife in the front row. She thought it wasn't stupid. but So I had ideas. But I say one year was enough. And she was doing beautifully by that. So didn't need me at all. And I sure didn't need me. But, I mean... Her husband got me out of a financial hole years later. I had had nothing for years, and I had this huge credit card debt. And I realized, you know, this guy got millions. He gave his stepson half a million dollars to buy his first property to do some stuff with. And uh, I asked him if he could maybe finance my loan, loan me some money because I could pay him 10% interest and still be half of what I was paying sure. on the debt, credit card loan. So he said no. It, instead, he sent me a check for half of it and did let me pay off the rest at 50 bucks a month or something for the next 15 years. So these are, I have special people. I survive now because of one of my brothers. Gives me monthly addition to my uh, ridiculous amount of Social Security from years of working at non- uh, uh, top rank uh, institutions right. teaching sociology, and I probably was not cut out to be the the perfect academic anyway. Again, yeah, you, you know, don't strike me as a corporate a, type, or a corporate type either. Yeah. Although, let me tell you about my daughter. I've got anyway. So, all right. Okay. So, let me take another stab at that same question. Do you have a dream or a vision for the future? based on the work that you have done. Oh, that's too grand a statement. I really would hope that these people who follow me do do the work and keep alert to the opportunities and make opportunities happen, follow up on, to complete this trail. I mean, you know, that's, 
but I mean, if I think about what I've done with my life, I, I, I will cry. <laughs> so don't make me do that. But anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, this is in the Barbara Walters interview. <laughs> no, uh, that's too grand. But I think the important thing is that probably the one lesson that you could take is that uh, uh, any most people who've got a business going, kept it going, and so on, you you just have to uh, keep trying things and thinking of things and to follow your uh, your. Uh, I guess I don't use the word instinct, but maybe people would. If you if you want to write something down, I I look at myself and. I'm not sure I had a choice. You make it sound like I had a choice. Well, that's why I asked I you if you felt like you were drafted. No, I really gave you words already. I think it was there, and I felt compelled. Uh, but uh, I think that if you look at what I've been talking about, uh, it must have had, it rang some chords in me because I didn't just see a problem. I saw solutions, and but again, I mean, I'm always thinking of things to fix or to make better in my life, even in little ways, big ways, little ways, make things work. You know, I mean, I fixed a problem at the Y. They were letting the lane line dividers fall apart, and I thought, okay, they're never going to get around to fixing these. I called up and I got on the web and found out there's even a supplier in Indy. It turns out, once I had got the ball rolling found out how you could repair them and there was stuff available. Somebody actually really looked at it and they figured there was still enough of this lane divider cable left that if they really thought about it, they could reattach it on this ratchet spool thing. They had enough to fix it right there. I mean, I didn't have to buy anything. But somebody had to put their foot down and say, I'm sick and tired of having this thing fall apart. You know, and I just, I'm the one who picks up the phone. So I wasn't called, I was made this way. Okay. <laughs> I can't help myself, in other words, that's it. Don't leave it with any calling, please. I left the church all those years ago, you know, and this was just something I could do, and I saw a solution, and nobody was doing it. So that's it, I called people together because nobody was doing anything. Got tired of complaining to the Forest Service, so this nice guy Bruce said, well, hell, Suzanne, you just gotta organize something. I didn't even think of it, Bruce did. Yeah. <laughs> I went home and did it. But you were the one that actually did it. Well, I did, and my, my sister city exchange. And I still have incredible returns from this uh, thing before um, at Cold War time in the 80s. You know, Reagan, the bombs, the, the guys and the pilots up there circling in the White House wait, waiting for the call on the red phone to go bomb right. Moscow. Right. That was then, and so I got a project. Nobody was doing things, and yeah, I figured... The only way you can do that is convincing people to vote right. So I got a community project so people could see that those people over there had no, you had no more reason to bomb those people in the Soviet Union than you had to bomb yourself. Bring, I had realtors and everything giving me money, you know, all these people, these Republicans, giving me cash to help bring people from the Soviet Union over to talk and billboards in the communities, welcoming, you know, things. Because I dropped all my environmental work years ago before the trails thing, and decided I had there I was. What could I do to solve this problem? I was just somebody in a little town in Champaign-Urbana in Illinois, and uh, so I got 
okay, people have to talk. The politicians were talking to each other. Nobody was listening. So you have to get people, influence the voters. So I had to talk to get local people, ordinary people involved to see what I could see. And so I got this project. I brought people over and I'm connected with an English language magnet school over there, matching community in the Soviet Union. And it turns out it was in the Baltics and they were going to get free and they had been only taken over in the 40s. It was neat. And, uh, but I just saw a problem and it was so important to me, I dropped everything. And I didn't have any money and I just put an organization together, managed to do it bring people over and got local people who thought it was one of the best things that ever happened to them to go over there. You know? I, I love the idea that you put your, Just had to do something. your your ecology work on temporary hold to uh, work for world peace. <laughs> I mean, you don't well, take small projects. I, mean, I figured, you, well, look, you know, there were going to be any trees around if uh, you didn't stop the bombs <laughs> from being dropped. You well, know? where is that? Really? That, that's yeah. the calculation. I remember thinking that. Yeah. Who cares about trees when the bombs are going to yeah. kill us all off? So I thought, and I looked around at what one person, an ordinary person, could do because all the letters in the world weren't convincing any politicians to do anything. You know? Well, I, I, I just have so to there's love a that good there's example. Nothing, there's nothing that's too big for you. Well, I was just one person in a small town in the middle of nowhere. You know? Ah, well, that was uh, then, and this is now. Yeah, so, and this is, see, this isn't a very big, important object, but it was something I could do, given where I was with a family and kids and being a sociologist and a wife of a, well, in a channel. They're not, I had some chances for being somebody in a big time in the Sierra Club, I mean, you know, in uh, California. Who knows what I would have done as head of the, the, the office in Los Angeles. <laughs> Talking to my friend, Mr. Pete McCloskey. <laughs> right. um, that was, I knew the head of the, the Nature Conservancy in San Francisco by the time because of the project I had. In fact, that's part of the reason I got the offer from McCloskey. But that's something else I was doing that was useful at the time. Yes. And they helped one of my sponsors. So that's something going on there. That didn't hurt. But uh, things that needed doing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're an inspiration. Well, it's not been an easy life. It's uh, not so, easy no, being me. No, it's a me. life of service. It's not easy being me. I'm not the perfect person, as you can tell. I need to get home. Yeah, it's a 3.30. But uh, anyway, it's home. Well, it may not be easy being you, <laughs> but thank you for being you. <laughs> well, if I had had anything to do with it, I might accept your thanks. But, you know, all I was doing is what they're doing the best you can with what you got. That's all any of us can do. That's true. So, okay. You know, we all stand up and play our small And role. it's only when you see people who had opportunities and didn't take them that you feel sad, you know, when you see they've found things to do. And, you know, so as I said, my only advice is uh, just uh, uh, stay the course, you know, and try to find the, the uh, strength to do what seems what you've got in you, you know, if you have a talent or something, and uh, don't be afraid of... Well, fortunately, nobody ever bothered much to tell me not to do anything. I grew, I, didn't, uh, I grew up in a family where you figured out what you had to do, and then you were free to do it, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, we've... <laughs> one, of, 
Well, I'll tell you one of my favorite examples of how I got where I am. It's so small, but I really was sad that my mother was, she was depressed, terribly depressed, that she would sit so much of the day when she wasn't doing something quite nice, but, and watch television. Oh, I hated that television when I was a kid. All the dumb programs, you know. So one day, I, the plug, was plugged in the wall behind some curtains. I unplugged it. I had grown up so resourceful. I told you something. If something didn't work, I fixed it. And there was a lot of a number of things. But some of the rest of the family didn't have that ability. Two weeks, no television in the house. Somebody figured something had gone wrong, and nobody was going to get around to bothering to fix it. And then finally, one day, somebody, maybe they were going to take it out of the living room to put in the car to go take it to get fixed or something. They figured out it just wasn't plugged in. <laughs> took two weeks. Did they figure out it was you? Oh no, nothing was ever made of that. Oh no, 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 no. These were the nicest kinds. They gave us every, took us to lessons and did trips and, oh, I mean, you know, I got this idea to go to Europe and I had help. I saved money and worked and everything. I used all my college money at 16 and spurred on an opportunity I had, I found out you can do to join a, a uh, I think one of my more important things I did for it, but it shows something, I just decided I need to do something different. Remember, New Year's is that year, 16th birthday coming up. I want to do something different. And I somehow, with various opportunities, I decided, well, that would be different to go to Europe. I was just 16. Well, I, I think you succeeded in general. And uh, I figured out a way. It turns out I heard about you to this day can sign up on uh, tour groups that have a plan itinerary for and uh, they need they get a block of grant of uh, rooms and things trips and things guides reserved and then not enough people fill up but they've got those they've paid for those things and to this day uh, you can go to a doctor's convention or tour by being part of the extra members that go and don't attend the lectures but do everything else just as baggage you know and um, my father actually did that a few years when he was, uh, and so I found one of those that was going to uh, tour a, a graduate music school chorale that was going to tour Europe for a month, go everywhere and perform in all the major capitals and everything. And I got onto that tour. So it was marvelous. There was also this little extra thing. I'd been studying singing and almost made a career as a mezzo soprano. And I got to New York. I happened to sit in on them. They let me perform with them. I could sight read anything, and I had a decent voice. So I got to perform in all those capitals. I did everything else, but we've spent three days in every major capital and just toured, and oh God, the things I saw. We'd have time on our own, and everybody thought I was 19, I found out. Yeah. <laughs> Just turned 16, so. But I was six feet tall then, so I've lost some height because of my back problem. But, uh, so, you know, I just, but it was there, anybody else could have done it, but not too many people were thinking of this. Well, you have, to, you have to be present to. Uh... But I, I've been working since I was 14, summers, working hard. I like plants, so I did the dirty work of working in a greenhouse and fields because I like plants and I didn't want to flip burgers or something. So I would I was willing to work and I had money even. I blew it all on that ticket. So
But, um, yeah, so anyway, just a uh, product of my circumstances and a marvelous bunch of heritage, I think, strong people and followed our, but we all followed our interests. They gave us that courage, you know, to, to follow. Uh, and uh, well, that's probably the did. gift more than anything, you know, if I think of all the things they did. But they were people of principle. And uh, they thought my dad could have gone well far, far, and he stuck with his union. He wanted was a union man, and uh, and he became an atheist. One last little story. See, I'm a storyteller, but you'll like this one. I always remember at his funeral. I was in this big old funeral home in Cleveland, where I grew up. This old neighborhood, and the wife had been a devout Catholic, the Irish Catholic, and. Uh, uh, were, no, this is not, uh, he married a second, my dad married a second woman, so Catholic. But his family had been Catholic, all of them except for him. And so it was surrounded by Catholics. The front row, there were four priests lined up. So we're up there giving talks, you know, the commemorative, I'm the last one in line of the four of us siblings. And I stand up and I talk, I give a very short, carefully constructed speech about uh, my father, the atheist, <laughs> the most principled man you could know, and whom his mother, uh, the I forget if I called her a devout Catholic or anything, understood and accepted. The mother of us all, the grandmother of so many out there, you know, we were so many of us related. And I used the, I remember using my arm to include everybody. She loved him for what he was. And I was very conscious of those damn priests out there. I mean, when he tried to give away his daughter for the marriage, they wouldn't even, they remembered all those years ago, they wouldn't let him walk his own daughter down the aisle of that damn Catholic church because they remembered he was an atheist. Mm. So the mother of us all, I called upon my grandmother, the Irish Catholic, Grandmother. Afterwards, my sister came up to me and said, Suze, I can't understand how you could, I, I can't believe you did that. And my brother, Chuck, came up and said, Thank God you spoke up. <laughs> I still remember. Anyway, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now I've had my fun. I have very, very fine friends. I'm very fortunate. Besides, very, very fine family. Yeah, yeah. Well, all I can say is thank you for your life's work. Thank you for spending the afternoon with us so we could record these words. I'm just sorry I didn't have a way to film all of this. You, you are such an animated person. Well, is the Irish here? <laughs> you think? So what, just what, what percentage Irish do you think? Well, it's you know, one quarter. I'm a classic wasp except my white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Uh, and, you know, I had the Irish and... English, actually, my mother, uh, my uh, mother's mother was English, but uh, so uh, the grandparents were English and uh, Mennonite from Alsace-Lorraine, mm -hmm. drained the swamps of Northwest Ohio. My family is in the books there. They're four mm -hmm. the founders of. Have you and, done your DNA? And, yeah, no, and then Swiss and Irish. My Swiss grandfather, I know where he's from in Switzerland. Because okay. I, I have notes from that family within all the, they had big families and all, who came over and who didn't and everything from the 
1800s when they were some stayed behind. And I met someone once who grew up in the valley my grandfather's father had come from. And uh, I met her on the towpath in uh, Oxford, England, neighbor. We got to talking about where are you from? And I found a common, it was crazy. Saint-Emilion yeah. <laughs> was on the, open out in the French side of the Alps, but they were very, 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 very much Swiss. Mm. He came to this country, a fire-breathing, uh, whatever you call him, something or other. That atheism went deep. <laughs> well, um, I've been married twice so, so far, and both of my so wives are half German, so I feel like I have earned my entire German merit badge. Well, you could pass for German and so well, what's the What is the largest immigrant group in America? Well, I would think in Indiana it's definitely German. Well, it is in and America. They, in America. It's yeah, followed German. probably by the Irish. Yeah. But they, the Germans, in fact, I looked this up when I was teaching sociology, and the Germans, I think, were something like five million, and the Irish only four of the original immigrants in the 19th century, mm. four million something. So, of course, there were more Germans to begin with, yeah. but they had different, more waves um, of immigrish, immigration yeah. uh, inspiration, various Penn different things pushing them. them. What? Penn went over there to recruit them. William Penn. Yeah. Uh -huh. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I know you the know, He got a grant from the Crown and he needed people to populate his... Oh, I never house. heard of that. Yeah, That's another thing because a lot of... There's like a hundred years war going on or something. Well, there were, so I was they, thinking more of the exit reasons than the, the, that made them susceptible. Well, that's where the Pennsylvania Germans were a lot of the ones that settled down in right. the Sparksville area where mm -hmm. I've got some of that. And so that's why they were in Pennsylvania because I never, I only knew that that uh, they came from there, which tempered their spirit. They've, uh, it turns out there are two different strains down there in uh, Sparksville. They're the, uh, the strains that came up from the Appalachians that explains why they're so backward in terms of interest in uh, education and so on. And then there were the Germans. You know, and when I got that park donated down there in Sparksville, my friend Edith, I was so happy. I was hallucinating about how how it happened, and she said, Suzanne, you don't know what it is that donated, that's nothing, getting it donated. She said, the miracle is that a German was willing to part with the land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, there you go, yeah. there you go. Well, Suzanne, this is... But it was really, Edith that really helped. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing experience for me personally, <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for your willingness to come in and do this. Well, you can see it's been such hard work for me. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I had a feeling the moment you started talking that you were a natural. <laughs> um, let me, uh, if you don't mind. It's funny, my wife's grandparents passed away. We inherited their German Bible, family Bible. Yes. Printed in Indianapolis. <laughs> right, I have this, my great-grandparents' Swedish Bible printed in Swedish that was also printed in Indiana. No kidding. Yeah, like, go figure. Interesting. Well, I do want to get a, a picture of Nineken. Well, no, I'll get a picture of you guys, you three. Well, it's it's Charles's idea, you see, for posterity. Yeah, well, People kept right. telling me to write a book, but I mean, I've got all these... Uh, let me tell you, Eastman stories up to yin yang now. 
<laughs> I was going to bring a tripod, but I don't have one to hold my camera. I know. <laughs> I do have a small one, but I can't find it. I got a small one, but it doesn't sit up. <laughs> um, Dave, could you yes, go could. over between those two and let me... I'm happy to do that. Shoot a picture. Chris, I've been sitting for two hours. Yeah, I gotta loosen up my parts a little bit. I hear you. <laughs> I just got some new parts last uh, oh. last year. Got a new hip. Is that oh, right? Oh, well, I highly recommend it. If you need a new hip, get one. No, I'm very. I, they don't. Unfortunately, uh, new hearts are a little harder to obtain. Uh, that's what yeah, I need. That's a bigger deal. That's what I need. My hips. I'm lucky. Everything else works, but if the heart doesn't, you got a little problem. Charlie, you want to sit down here? Yeah. Where'd you get that nice hat? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh. Yeah, my uh, my grandparents were Swedish immigrants, but I did my DNA and found out I'm 17% Irish. Is that right? Right, which well, makes me just Irish enough to enjoy a good glass of whiskey, but not so Irish enough <laughs> to beat the crap out of my friends after. I see. Very interesting. All right, well, Knobstone. Knobstone. Yeah. Very good. Don't think of it as a joke, folks. Well, I always figured that uh, that's working a bit backwards because you the, you get a bit of Swedish in the yeah oh, well, you got no, this see you got all those Vikings down that they came right. down and contributed really well that's a very generous way of putting it. Well, I mean, it depends on which end of the <laughs> well, you know, the family did give up raping and pillaging about a thousand years ago and got into some other stuff. Oh, I, uh, I might did you need this or I might take it back? Yeah, that, that is yours. Yes, I'll take that. that, that side. 